Welcome to White Plains Baptist Church. My name is Gary and I joyfully serve as senior pastor here. If you're new to us, I want to say a special welcome to you. Thank you for being our guest. You are an answer to prayer. I've been praying for you and your family this week. And as our guest, I hope that you find our church to be a warm and welcoming group of people. We are excited about the kitchen remodel. It's almost done. We've got some tile work that we're going to finish this week. Uh, but we're going to go ahead and have a, a reception uh, this uh, after service for Brett and Ada Oliver. This is their last uh, Sunday with us, and we want to give, give us some time to say thank you for the ministry that they've done uh, so well here at White Plains. So that'll be right after church. Uh, you'll be able to, to sneak a peek at the, at the almost finished kitchen, um, but it'll be good to share that time with them. Kids, it's always good having you here with us at church, seeing you here at church. Um, you, I'm hearing things from parents and grandparents about how well uh, you're learning things about God. Um, many people don't realize that we gave our, all of our kids and our students at Christmas this year, we gave them a book. Um, and many of them are reading through that book. Uh, there are different books for the age groups and things, but, but many of them are reading through that book at home. And, and I'm hearing really good conversations are happening, and, and kids are, are, are sponges, are soaking up stuff about God through these books that we gave them as a church. And uh, so kids, if you could help me, since you guys remember stuff very well, maybe your parents or grandparents don't, remind them of the parent meeting next week. They might forget, but I bet you guys can remember. If you could help them, uh, Lacey's going to have that parent and grandparent meeting uh, right after church. So if you could help them to re remember that, that would be good. Kids, you're dismissed uh, to go to the lobby to be taken up to kids' church. This is uh, for kids in uh, kindergarten through fifth grade, and parents and grandparents, you can pick up your little ones uh, after our service is over. As they're leaving, uh, I do want to make mention of the, uh, the Thursday morning fellowship. We had a full room over in room 126 over in the chapel building. Thank you so much for all of you all who came. I know many of you all had other uh, obligations Thursday morning last week, and, and you're expecting to come soon, and uh, it was a good time of, of prayer, of Bible study, of fellowship. Um, we talked about some things that might make that group uh, experience some fun together, and one of those things, uh, have you all ever heard of chair volleyball? Have you all ever played chair volleyball or seen it done? I'm, I've been surprised, honestly, that, that people don't know about chair volleyball here in Allen County. Well, it's going to be the hottest thing in the county, I'll tell you right now. Chair, it's exactly what you think it is. It's volleyball while you're sitting in stationary. It's not wheelchair volleyball, but just chair volleyball. We use a beach ball, and it's a, it's a fun way to hopefully not hurt yourself. So we're going to try that as a Thursday morning fellowship on March the 13th at 9 a.m. And if all goes well, see the kids left. If all goes well, we'll, we'll challenge the kids one Sunday after church and, uh, and see who could, who could win the Thursday morning fellowship crew or the kid crew, but, but that'll be fun. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, there was talk about eating breakfast at Dumplings from, from time to time, and lots of good things uh, are going to come out of that Thursday morning fellowship group. Uh, I'm excited about it. Uh, one last announcement before we jump into Genesis 7 and 8 this morning, if you want to go ahead and start turning there. Would you mark March the 10th on your calendar? This is a Sunday, and this will be the Sunday right after my two-year anniversary uh, with you as your senior pastor. And I've spent the past couple of years getting to know you, getting to know our church, getting to know our community, getting to know our history. And March 10th will be the Sunday that I begin to lay out a vision for 
who we are as a church and how we serve as a church. I'm calling March 10th Vision Sunday, and it's easy, really too easy for a pastor to come in and immediately start making changes in vision and direction, and, and if it's done without getting to know the people first, it can, um, it can really cause a lot of problems. It can be very foolish, and, and so I've spent a couple of years learning us, getting to know our community, and I've sensed that Allen County needs a church that stands out from the culture. A sense that Allen County needs a church that stands out from the culture and that Allen County needs a church that takes the Bible and its message seriously. And not only takes it seriously, but, but actively and intentionally applies it to their lives. I've sensed that Allen County needs a church that is known for its love we have a county full of churches, and I don't know that love is the first thing that people think about when they think of the churches in our county. And Allen County needs a church that's known for its love, and, and it's known for its commitment to make disciples while being discipled, to be like Jesus. Allen County needs a church that lives out, its, lives out the fruits of the Spirit. Those are some of the things that, that we'll be addressing on March the 10th, on how, how we live those things out, how we take those things and apply them not only to our church culture, but to ourselves and ultimately to this county and region around us. I am excited to have this, to start this conversation with you. And there was probably a time, and you may remember it, when, when White Plains had an identity in the community. But over time and, and through leadership changes, that identity might have gotten lost. But on March the 10th, I will begin, Lord willing, to paint a picture of an, of an identity that we can understand as biblical, and we can understand it as achievable and excitable. So I'm looking forward to spending that time with you. I've listed a vision of ministry statement in your notes for you to start considering, and it says, we are disciple-making disciples of Jesus who love God, the community, and each other. We are disciple-making disciples of Jesus who love God, the community, and each other. This sentence comes from two passages in your Bible, the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. And both of those are listed, those references there are listed in your notes. So join us on March 10th at 10 a.m. for our Vision Sunday. So let's look at our series in Genesis. We are in the How We Got Here series, and we're quickly looking through the first 11 chapters of Genesis to help give us a framework for an introduction to the rest of the Bible. What happens here in these first 11 chapters helps us to understand the rest of the Bible. The Bible is many stories, telling one big story, and that's the story of God chasing after people like you and me and rescuing us. God rescues us to bring us back to the holy work that God has called us and created us for. And so this morning, we're going to be in a familiar passage that many of us know about. This is the flood narrative. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 7, and we'll read through most of chapter 8 as well. And if it's okay with you, I simply just want to read this passage to us in its entirety. You can follow along with me. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. So if you have an app or a phone and you want to flip over to that one, you can follow along. But if my version's a little bit different than yours. It's because I'm reading from the ESV uh, translation. 
So this is Genesis chapter 7, and we'll go through verses, uh, chapter 8, verse 19. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights. And every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded. Noah was six hundred years old when the floodwaters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of the animals that are not clean and of birds and everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, and on that day, all the foundations of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons went with them, entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The Lord continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark. And it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals, and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. And the water prevailed on the earth 150 days. Let's look at chapter 8. But God remembered Noah, and all the beasts, and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens were restrained 
and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven and went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her back into the ark with him. He waited another seven days and again sent forth the dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth a dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you all of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons, and his wife, and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Let's pray in response to what we just read. God, thank you for this narrative of you acting, you working in your creation. Help us to take this narrative, this, this account, and understand what you have in it for us. You are a good God, even as we wrestle with the truth of what happened in what we just read. You are good to us. We rest in that goodness this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So that's not a new story for us, is it? Many of our kids' books feature this story of Noah's Ark. It's a familiar story. As Christians, we believe the Bible is truthful. It is completely truthful. Here is how we state our belief in the Bible as Southern Baptists. This is from the Baptist Faith and Message, the 2000 edition, this is Article 1. So as Southern Baptists, this is what we believe about the Bible. The Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, 
salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles God judges us, and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. This is what we believe as Southern Baptists. This is our identity as a church, and this is what we believe as Southern Baptists. When we read what we just read in Genesis 7 and 8, let's first recognize the loss. Before we get distracted by the number of animals, the rain, where did it come from, where did it go? Was this a regional flood? Was this a global flood? How was the olive tree recovered so quickly? And whatever else we may be drawn to, let's recognize what we often don't want to think about when we look at this flood narrative. Let's recognize destruction. Let's recognize death. Everything and everybody. Destruction. Death. We believe the Bible to be totally true and totally trustworthy. And this is what the Bible says in Genesis 7, 21 through 23. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He, pointing to God, he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Everything died during this flood because God killed them. He killed them with this flood. This was God's doing. We mentioned last week that God was morally able to do this. He's able to do this. He is free to destroy as much as he is free to create. And as we think about this narrative, we might struggle with truly believing it really happened and that God really did this. It did. It really happened. And God really did this. God takes sin seriously. That's the huge point in the flood narrative, and we miss it so many times because we think of the cute pictures in children's books about two animals going in two by two into the ark. We miss that God takes sin seriously. God can be trusted. He does what he says he will do. In Genesis 6, 13, he says to Noah, I have determined to make an end of life of all flesh, for all the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. That was in Genesis 6. In Genesis 7, he does it. He destroys everything. Death comes upon all 
living things. God is good. Gary, how can you say that God is good right after you say God destroyed everything He created? That doesn't make sense. God, in His goodness, punishes and protects. Sin is serious and must be punished. The Bible is clear. Sin is an attack on God. All sin is an attack on God. And God is the creator. God is the ruler. God is king. He is sovereign. Think of it like this. What happens when a country is attacked by another country? We don't have to think too hard. This is playing out in the news all the time, isn't it? Gaza is not the same place it was months ago because an attack was carried out on Israel. Israel responded and is still responding to that attack on its sovereignty. The U.S. has had ships and bases attacked by other countries, and what do we do? We take it serious, and we punish those who attack us. Most people understand a sovereign nation's right to respond to attacks. Why would it be any different with God? Do we think Ukraine to be evil for reacting to Russia's attacks? Do we think our government was evil for responding to 9-11? Is it good for a country to respond to an attack? Is the country attacked good, or is it right for responding to that attack? Or should a country not respond to an attack on its sovereignty? I think we would all agree that a country that does not respond will soon not be a country. Would that be a fair statement? God is ultimately sovereign. He is over everything, including the nations. The Bible tells us in Romans 13 that God appoints the leaders of nations. God is completely sovereign. God is good, even as we sit under the weight of death and destruction. Sin is what drove God to act. Sin is an attack on God. God is good. God is more than good. God shows mercy. Now, don't misunderstand me. God is not good because he only shows mercy, we must understand that God is good for punishing sin. That might be hard, especially as we might have sin that we don't want to fully repent from. But God is good because he punishes sin. God is also good as he shows mercy. God saves Noah, and he saves his family. He saves Parts of creation that were in the ark. God is good. Let's take a moment to discuss the fact of the flood. We have, what we have in, in Genesis 6 through 8 of your Bible is the Abrahamic religious flood account. In the study of history and of anthropology, Christianity is considered an Abrahamic religion. We are considered this because we have the Hebrew Bible, as part of our canon. 
the Jewish faith and the Islamic faith make up the three religions that are considered from Abraham. And we all hold to this same flood account. But you're probably aware that there are other flood narratives, right? The most famous other flood account is the flood account in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Did you realize that almost every ancient culture, every ancient civilization, has a flood narrative attached to its creation narrative? Almost everyone. Japan does not, and there are certain parts of Africa that does not, but almost every other one has a flood narrative closely attached to its creation narrative. What do you think about this? What's interesting is that many of these different flood accounts have similarities to the flood account in Genesis. Here is the Choctaw flood myth. It's a group of Native Americans who still exist today in Oklahoma. So this is pretty much the opposite side of the globe where we would think that the Noah's flood account or Genesis flood account happened. This is their flood account from a website called nativelanguages.org. Our people have always had a tradition of the deluge, which happened in this way. There was total darkness for a great time over the whole earth. The Choctaw doctors or mystery men looked out for daylight for a long time until at last they despaired of ever seeing it. And the whole nation was very unhappy. At last, a light was discovered in the north, and there was great rejoicing until it was found to be great mountains of, ro of water rolling on, which destroyed them all, except for a few families who had expected it. And they built a great raft on which they were saved. I find the Choctaw flood uh, myth to be interesting because they were where they lived and how they were saved or how a few of them survived. Here's a little bit from the Inca flood myth. Again, the opposite side from the Near East where Genesis account is. This is in South America. I found this on a website called uh, Mythfile. The Inca, the Inca's supreme being and creator god, Contiki Viracocha, first created a race of giants, but they were unruly. So he destroyed them in a mighty flood and turned them to stone. Following a flood, he created human beings from smaller stones. So in this myth, we have unruly giants. This sounds similar to perhaps the sons of God or the Nephilim that we learned about last week. The Epic of Gilgamesh is the most famous flood narrative. It is from Mesopotamia. It's from near where the Genesis account is um, focused on. This is the ancient Near East. There's tons of similarities between the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Genesis account, so many that many people think Moses just copied the Epic of Gilgamesh. Now, we know that's not true because we know that we believe the Bible to be truthful, to be totally truthful. The Chinese have a flood myth, and this is from OxfordReference.com. Like most cultures, the Chinese have a flood myth. The great flood was sent by their high god of the sky and earth, Tiandi, during the reign of Yao. And as usually is the case with such floods, the cause was general wickedness of the human race. The single advocate for the human race 
which is now stranded on the mountaintops, plagued by wild beasts, was a demiurge, Gun. Gun unsuccessfully pleaded the human case with Tiandi. Then he finally decided to do something on his own. Plato references flood myths in the ancient Greece culture in his writings. And Australia, Australia outside of Genesis, Australia is my favorite one. It involves a thirsty frog, a wise owl, and a funny eel. I would encourage you to go look this one up. It is, uh, you can learn more about it by the, looking up the tale of Titillic the frog. You Google that, you'll be amused. Nearly every ancient culture has a flood narrative attached to the creation narrative. Science is currently coming to grips with this. They can't ignore it. And they're realizing that there must have been a flood. There's too much evidence. There's too much culture that points back to a flood. So one question that pops up by many, and maybe you've had this question, is was this a regional flood or was this a global flood? I believe the Bible is clear that the flood wiped out all living things on the earth. So in that way, it must have been global. But let's also admit that the globe probably didn't look like it does today. If you stick with, if you stick with us through this series as we get to the end in Genesis 10 and 11, the end of this series, when we get to the Tower of Babel, you'll understand that the landmass before the flood and during the flood was probably much different than it is today. And it might have been a singular landmass that many in science call Pangaea. It's possible. Another reason for a global flood is that almost every ancient culture has a flood narrative. And so if culture was spread out and this was only a regional flood, then those cultures that were spread out, how would they know to have a flood narrative or a flood myth? So I think with great confidence we can say that this is a global flood, but it might not have been the same globe that we see today as far as where things are. Another question that comes up is, well, where did the water go? Have you ever wondered where all the floodwaters went? We're not flooded anymore, so where did they go? This is a common question people ask, and we're not told biblically where the water went very well. But as you can think through the implications of water and land, we can logically presume that in God's recreation of everything with the flood, he used the water to change the face of the earth in ways that made the oceans deeper, mountains taller, bigger hills. We, we recognize this with like the Ice Age, right? You've been to, we lived in Ohio. Everything's flat in Ohio. But then you get to the Ohio River and everything in Kentucky is hilly. It's not uncommon that things change land when it comes to things on top of that. And so you can assume or presume that, that God was using the waters as it subsided in Genesis 8 that as he was doing that, things under the water were changing as well. But let's return to the biblical narrative and consider the point of the flood. We've, we've, we've read the flood. We've talked about some other flood myths. We've maybe answered a couple of questions that we have with this. But let's, let's consider the point. Why was there a flood? And how does it impact us today? Nearly every 
ancient culture has a flood narrative. That might have been the fifth time I've told you that because I want you to understand that everybody has a flood narrative. This gives us additional re- reasons to believe that there's, this is a reality. The Bible tells us this really happened. Science is conceding to the reality of a flood. So there's no reason to ever doubt an ancient flood. If someone comes to you questioning, did it really happen? Yes, it really happened. But just acknowledging the flood is just the beginning. Why did we have one? Science can't give us that answer. There's a common theme in all the ancient flood myths, and many of them resemble parts of the biblical flood narrative. There was wickedness, there was giants, there was sin, there was Nephilim, there was evil, and God's creation was acting contrary to how God intended us to act. Sin is running wild. The dark, spiritual, fallen world is trying to hurt God by getting humanity to sin. Humanity willingly sins. Sin is punished. And God shows mercy. Even though every ancient culture has a flood account, only Christianity ties the flood narrative to us today. Only Christianity ties what happened in ancient history with this flood with us today, and it ties us to that with Jesus. I've pointed out to you Genesis 5. I've pointed out to you Luke 3. It's family trees of Adam through Seth to Noah to Jesus. What happens with the flood is closely associated to you and to me today. Sin still exists. It's in each and every one of us. We must turn to God and agree with Him that we all have sin. We must admit that our sin is an attack on a sovereign God and that our sin deserves punishment. God shows mercy. There is freedom from the punishment of our sin when we follow Jesus and we trust in Him to redeem us, to make us right with God. Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'll invite the worship team to come back up. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The way God punishes sin is still death. We will see next week that he won't use a flood again to do it, but sin must still be punished. Mercy shows up in the free gift of God as we submit to the rule of Jesus in our life. For those of us who've trusted in Jesus for our salvation, the trusting and submitting of our lives continues. We must continually submit and trust Jesus as the Lord of our life.
as the ruler of our life. We don't just make a one-time decision and then do as we please. That's not what it means to have Jesus as our Lord. Jesus must continually reign over us. We must follow him through his word to us, the Bible. We're going to sing in a moment a song of invitation. And if you want to talk more about what it means to follow Jesus and to allow him to be your Lord, this is a time for you to come forward. You could speak with me, you could pray, or you could pray right where you're standing. Turn to God's mercy this morning. It's only found in Jesus. Return to submitting to Jesus as Lord in your life. Will you stand as we pray? God, we thank you for your goodness. God, we thank you for your goodness in punishing our sin. It is an attack on a sovereign God. And you must punish it. Thank you for that goodness of you being God. We thank you also for the mercy you show us in giving us freedom from that punishment as we follow Jesus and allow him to lord over us. Help us to follow after Jesus. Help us to recognize the seriousness of our sin and the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of his salvation that he gives to us as we follow after him. Strengthen us to follow him closely. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.